5. It reads, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Some of you know what today is. Some of you are familiar with what October 31st is in church history. No, Halloween is not a part of church history, but Reformation Day is when we learn about Martin Luther, learn that Galatians played a huge part in his understanding and his conversion. Paul here brings our eyes to a common problem, one that he addresses in his day in a specific manner, one that we too can address in our day in the same manner. The motto of the Reformation, does anybody know what it was? Post tenebrous looks. After darkness, light. It's a wonderful motto, isn't it? Beautiful. Looks great, kind of written in, in Latin somewhere, right? Looks awesome. Some people want to get it tattooed on their arms and get it imprinted on their Bibles. It's a beautiful thing. After darkness, light. But what was that darkness? What was that tenebrous? Well, if we could be so bold, it was a perversion of the gospel. Rather than clinging to the true and unadulterated gospel that the church had received, started mixing some things in started elevating the church really above God. I say that, some would say that, ah, oh, that might be a stretch. No, no, it's not. Because the same question that Paul asks here is the same question that the reformers asked to the church. 
we have where now it's the ministry or administration of the priests that save. Or it's your participation in all of these sacraments that save. It's your works working in conjunction with that faith you claim to have that saves. And so the darkness that we are now so thankful to be after is the same darkness, sadly, that throughout church history has reared its ugly head over and over and over again. We may think we're free of it. We may think that, well, that doesn't happen here. But if we had a conversation with every member of this church, I guarantee you that someone would feel burdened. Someone would feel as though they're not doing enough. Someone would lack assurance of salvation. Even though your name's on the roll. Even though part of the membership process here is to be able to boldly proclaim the gospel, to explain it in your own words. Yet you'd still lack assurance. You'd still be concerned that there was something else that you needed to be doing because this doesn't seem like enough. And the hurtful part about it is that most of the churches that we grew up in say that exact same thing. Believing is just the first part. The gospel is just the doorway. But now, you need to do all of these things to be one of us. You need to keep to these specific rules in order to be considered a true Christian. You need to look like me. You need to dress like me. You need to speak like me. food you eat needs to be like the food I eat. The beverages that you drink need to be like the beverages that I drink. Not like mine, but in general. I drink fancy water. You don't need to drink fancy water. But in conjunction with the gospel, there is this turn towards now prove it by your works. You're not saved if you're not walking door to door, knocking and giving testimonies. You're not saved if you have a tattoo because the Bible clearly prohibits tattoos. You're not saved if you 
drank alcohol because the Bible says that you shouldn't be a drunkard. And yet every single one of us, I'm sure we could point to more sins than our fingers and toes can count that we're guilty of. Every single one of us. And so we build this expectation, this requirement for people who want to be a part of our club to hold themselves to. This requirement to attain. And all the while, you and I are failing at it every single day. All the while, we ourselves can't, can't attain the standard that we're setting for those who are seeking and coming in. Rather than there being the same grace that God has shown us, rather than there being the same love and compassion that God extends to us, we fence off God and stand guard with our rifles and say, you're not on the list. If you don't have these things, you're not on the list. If you don't do these things, then no, no, you don't get to be counted in the in crowd. Is that not what the Galatians faced? Is that not what Paul is trying to combat? This entire epistle, this entire letter is really Paul being aghast at what's going on. He doesn't even take the time to give his nice long and, and drawn out introduction and prayer and, and, and all of these well wishes at the beginning of the letter. Look at it. He, he, he gives his Paul an apostle not of men, but of God. And, and, and those who are with me, grace and peace be to you. Amen. But I am astonished immediately. It's like as soon as he does the dear Cindy. I am astonished. And, and, and we get here and he says, oh, foolish Galatians. Why? Because something isn't right. Something's not quite right. Who has bewitched you? I love that term. Some people would translate it bewitched. Some commentators actually translate it. Who laid an envious eye on you, a jealous eye. I like that translation because it kind of gives this air of you had it right. And others spied it out. 
and they were jealous of this freedom that you had. And they're trying to draw you in and rob you of that. Who has bewitched you? That 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 term kind of has some occult. Undertones, doesn't it? It's almost as if there's some sort of demonic. Or, 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 or supernatural work going on influencing the Galatians. It can't be by any logic, right? It can't be based on reason. Something weird has to be going on. This, 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 this has to be a work of Satan, some sort of spiritual warfare. Something is happening because it just doesn't make sense to me. Who has bewitched you? Why doesn't it make sense? Why is it such a, a big deal? Why is it an issue for Paul? He says it was before your eyes. Paul was present. Paul was there. Paul preached the gospel. Before your eyes, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That word here, publicly portrayed, actually gives the impression of a of a word picture, a, a storyteller that tells the story so well that you feel like you're there. Tells the story so well that as the nails are going through Jesus's hands, you feel the pain. Tells the story so clearly, so vividly, and they are convicted in such a way that it was as though they were at the foot of the cross when it happened. And not just seeing the crucifixion. When Paul uses that term, he's talking about the gospel as a whole. They know why Jesus was crucified. They know that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the son of God. They know that he is the God man who is God, the only one who can do any good and man who can identify with you and I. Who offers himself to God as this perfect sacrifice. This atoning sacrifice, this sacrifice on our behalf pays for our sins, washes us with his blood. And they know of this resurrected Jesus. With that resurrection being proof that the father has accepted the sacrifice. That victorious resurrection, that defeat of death and that enthronement of their king. At the right hand of the father. They know. They saw it. They experienced. They had no excuse. 
And they did nothing to earn any of it. It didn't say you got yourself ready. It didn't say you met some sort of rule. It didn't say that you positioned yourself in such a way to receive this crucified Christ. It said it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It was face to face that the gospel was proclaimed to you in such a way to where you were convicted. You were changed. You were not the same. You were, in fact, born again. You did, in fact, receive this new birth. And so on the basis of that, on the basis of Paul's own witnessing of the conversion of the Galatians. His own witnessing that God had worked a work in their lives. In their midst. There was no question about whether or not they were truly saved. No, Paul does not question their salvation. And so he says, let me ask you only this. And I love this because he just rattles off a bunch of questions. Just rattles them off question after question after question after question. He rattles them off, but he doesn't interject with an answer and say they're rhetorical. I don't think they're rhetorical. I think he really wants them to think about this. He really wants them to answer it. He knows the answer. But he knows they know the answer as well. He says, let me ask you only this. First question, did you receive the spirit? It's assumed. It's a fact. You received the spirit. I witnessed it. I see evidence of it. You receive the spirit. But the question is, did you receive the spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Did your conformity. To the circumcision party, did your ability to obey God's law. Serve as the labor you offered for the wage of the Spirit? Was the Holy Spirit payment for your good works? Did you receive the Spirit because you were so holy and righteous? Let's think about that for a second. 
apart from Christ, what are we? Our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. Paul tells us that no one seeks after God. Tells us there's no one good, not not one. We're rebels, sinners, enemies of God. And you mean to tell me that you think conformity, obedience to your labor, your works, earned you the spirit? So did you work for it? Or did you just receive him? Did you work to earn the indwelling of God the Spirit? Or did you recognize your inability to do anything at all? Did you recognize your inability to even do the least bit of good? And simply receive the grace of God. I love that. There's this contrast between activity and passivity. Right? One has works of the law, a very active thing. The other has simply receiving. By hearing. Hearing's passive, is it not? You have to work to hear. What are you doing right now to hear me? Are you like active listening? It's almost like breathing. We do it unconsciously. It just happens. And so the gospel is proclaimed and we are convicted by it, not because we did anything, but because we hear and receive. There is no work at all involved in that. There is no earning, no me justifying my position involved. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, Paul is being very specific here, is he not? Because every time he mentions works, he says works of the law. So he's not just talking in generalities. He's talking about something a little bit different. Quip class this morning, we we hit on James chapter 2, right? Faith without works is dead. It's useless. A waste of time. Right? 
And yet Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Works do not save you. You have in Galatia those who feel that the gospel is just that doorway we talked about. You have in Galatia the necessity of grace, but not the sufficiency of grace. You have the exact same problem the reformers had. I will say that Roman Catholicism, some would say that, yes, they're, they believe the same things we do. No, they believe in grace, the necessity of it. But it's clear that the sufficiency of grace is far from their mind. Here in Galatia, we have Christian Jews who acknowledge the necessity of grace. But in order to truly be the people of God, in order to truly please God, in order to show yourself authentic, there's some extra you need to do. And so when he speaks of the circumcision, when he speaks of that, he's speaking not just of snipping off a foreskin, he's speaking of being prostatized into Judaism. He's speaking of entering into the old covenant. He's speaking of you now submitting yourself to a law that Christ already fulfilled. And yet you have those who Paul says snuck in. Those who are around agitating the people of Galatia, those who are there who have now said, Yes, Christ is all and in all. Yes, his sacrifice on the cross was necessary, but you have to take it a step further. You now have to enter into the fold. You have to become a Jew. In all respects, you have to submit yourself now to Jewish law. You have to now submit yourself to the, how many is it now? 620, I don't remember the exact number, it's a lot. Of laws in which we submit ourselves to. You have to add works in order to truly be saved. And to not do so would be to place yourself outside of the camp. It would be to make yourself unclean, unworthy to enter into the presence of God. Because God's people are the Jews. Now do we see where that 
chasm lies. Do we see why that's so important? And we also see how prevalent that same thing is today. That question was answered back in the first century, but that same question is constantly being asked in the 21st century. Some two millennia later, we still have those who rather than seeing the all-sufficiency of God, see him only as an enabler and sees man as the author of their own salvation. Sees man as the pilot of their own ship. Sees man as needing to add his part. And throughout Christianity, that degree of man's involvement might vary. Some feel that man has to do it all. Others might feel that there's this one little step you have to do. But every single one of them beg the question, is Christ enough? Is Jesus enough? Or is he just an appetizer? Is he just that small plate that comes out before the real meal begins. Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? He repeats it. He calls them foolish. Are we not supposed to call somebody a fool? And they say that in one of the Gospels. And they say, oh, you shouldn't call your brother a fool. It's a bad sin. No, you're not supposed to call him a fool without cause. And yet here we have Paul saying that you are foolish. Why are you foolish? Because you know the truth. It's crystal clear. I saw evidence of it. The picture was painted so perfectly that there was no way that you could think any differently. So much so that my only explanation is that it had to be some sort of bewitching or supernatural something happening because reason can't explain it. And so the only word I can come up with is just foolish. Are you foolish? I think we know the answer to that. What would they respond? No, I'm, I'm not foolish. Not at all. I have sense. I understand the gospel. Yes, we've heard it. And yet Paul goes back to it. He says, having begun by faith, having begun by the spirit. So he's already assuming they know the answer to the first question, right? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it because you earned God the Holy Spirit? Or was it because you recognized your inability to obtain him and, and, and God by his grace sent him into your heart? 
Did you receive him? By works of the law, by hearing with faith. He knows the answer. And he says, having begun by the spirit, this is the beginning. Having begun by the spirit, having it be a work of God just to get you to this point. Why would you believe that you can handle it the rest of the way? If, 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 if it took God to change your heart, if it took God to send the God man to die in your stead, if it took God to die on the cross, if it took God to atone for your sins, if it took God to be your perfect High priest. What makes you think that your flesh, that your works, that your own actions and strength can carry you through to perfection? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? By the flesh. If we think about that, if we think about our lives, if we think about our approach to spiritual things, are we leaning more on our own strength? Or are we like Paul boasting in our weakness? Recognizing that it is only through the strength of God that there is any, any good that comes from me. It is only through the strength of God that this wretched sinner, this rebel, this enemy of God has now become his child. Psalm 2 presents us as futile rebels who this conquering king whom the father has set on Zion is bearing down on. And rather than destroy us, he says, come and take refuge in me. In all things, he shows himself to be all-powerful. He shows himself to be more than enough. He shows himself to be God Almighty, King of Kings. And he says, take refuge in me. Kiss the sun. Must he be angry? You, oh foolish Galatian, what makes you think you can earn anything God has to offer when apart from him you stand as his enemy? 
And it is only because of his sovereign grace that you now reside within his walls. It is only by his work that you are now being considered a member, a citizen in his kingdom. What makes you think that you can be perfected by the flesh? Verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain? We don't know if the suffering here mentioned is actual trials and hardships on account of the gospel. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Some would translate that suffer as experience. Right. All that they have witnessed, all that they themselves have experienced and been eyewitness to from the moment Paul preached and the spirit moved in a mighty way and changed their hearts and saved them. Gave them that new birth, regenerated them. I think both work. Whether it was suffering on account of Christ. If we were to suffer, I pray that it was on account of Jesus himself, on account of the, the work that he has done, on account of his name and his righteousness, for being a part of his kingdom. Let me suffer for that. But if I am suffering and all of that is not, then I should be pitied. You should be concerned about me. You should have me committed. Because if my suffering is for some useless, made up piece of something, then shame on me. But what I experienced at my conversion, the work that God Himself, by His Spirit, worked in my presence, that which was publicly portrayed and publicly proclaimed. Was it for nothing? And he adds, if indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the spirit. Who supplies the spirit? Who is it that sends the spirit? Is he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you. It's the same he. It is God who supplies his spirit. It is God who works miracles among you. Does he do it by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? It brings us full circle, does it not? Is God enough for you? Is Jesus Christ enough? Is his work sufficient?
or is your work better? I think about the garden and man's expulsion from it. And then we read the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain offers his own labors, the works of his own hands. And Abel recognizes that there's nothing that I can do that can be pleasing to you. And so rather than offer the fruits of his own labor, the, the, the works of his own hands, the life of an animal is offered. Food. Nourishment. What you and I would consider life-sustaining. He steps out on faith and he offers a sacrifice. And he trusts God. But we see the heart of Cain was wicked. We see that Cain's object of faith was not God, but himself. And we see, unfortunately, the same things today. We're rather than hearing and trusting in faith, we want to add works to make ourselves feel as though we belong, to elevate ourselves above, to place ourselves in some sort of higher position of authority or holiness or you name it. And so when Paul speaks about the foolishness of thinking that your conformity to this law, your becoming a Jew, has anything to do with your salvation. It seems that the answer Is simple. It's a resounding no. The Jews throughout history have failed miserably at displaying the grace of God to the nations. The Gentiles throughout history have failed miserably of displaying the grace of God to the nations. But in Christ, there is neither Jew, nor Greek, slave, nor free, male, or female, but Christ is in all. In Him, we don't have to be a Jew. In Him, we we don't have to conform to a certain set of man-made rules in order to be considered his. In Christ, we don't have to meet a certain standard first or finish by 
trying to meet that certain standard. The same God who saved us is the same God who will see us through. It's one of those things last week uh, Jerry mentioned, I don't know if it was during the, the members meeting, he mentioned a, mentioned a flower, he, he mentioned tulip. And the P in tulip is the perseverance of the saints. I prefer to say it's the preservation of the saints. Because it refocuses our mind on God rather than the fruits of our own efforts. It is God who preserves his people. It is God who by his spirit perfects us in the end. The sanctifying work of the spirit is all God. Why can you look on your life today and say to yourself, I may not be where I want to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. Where along that line did you do something? Some conscious effort on your part, some conformity on your part that got you to that point. I can guarantee you can't point to it. I know I can't. But I know that my God is faithful, not just to positionally place me in Christ, but to providentially keep me there. Your salvation is not some one-time thing that, check that box, now you're good. No, God continues that work. God continues that work to the end. Right? We've been crucified with Christ. We are dead to trespasses and sin. And yet here we are living in this flesh. Because God is still working. May we trust in him. May we not lean so heavily on our own works. But rather recognize the sufficiency of God in all matters of life and godliness. Let's pray.